0: drama of redemption tonight. In the 17th chapter we had Jesus bringing to the ends his private ministry to his own. Now in the 18th chapter we have Jesus starting or beginning his public drama of redemption. The eighteenth chapter, so if you'll look at it, please, in verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, which was a <coughs> where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees cometh thither with the lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus therefore knowing all things that should come upon him went forth and said unto unto them whom seek ye? They answered him Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asking them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, smote the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. And led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews, that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Everybody said, "Amen." Amen. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We ask God that you would anoint us to declare it and also to receive it. In Jesus' name, receive all the glory, honor, and praise. Amen. You may be seated tonight. And the public drama of redemption. The Bible says, when Jesus had spoken these words, of course, this is the 17th chapter, his high priestly prayer. The scripture tells us he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into which he entered. And his disciples the first thing I want to share with you tonight is there are two things that you need to understand when you come to the Word of God and and that is prophecy prophecy comes to us from God in the Old Testament verbal predictive prophecy and typical predictive prophecy say with me verbal predictive prophecy and typical predictive prophecy you're going to see fulfillments of both verbal predictive prophecy and typical predictive prophecy in the passage. The Bible says that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron. Say amen. Now, the brook Kidron, in order to get to the Mount of Olives, or actually really at the foot of the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane was located, you would have to cross over a bridge that crossed over the Kidron Little bitty—it's not really a river; it's just a small little wadi that would flow there near the Mount of Olives. So you had to cross over that to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, when we look at the Brook Kidron, let's go over to Second Samuel in the fifteenth chapter. Uh, you will see typical prophecy here. Where we have another king in the past walking over the Kidron. All right, his name's David. Okay, so everything you're going to see here is um, prophesied. It is either prophesied by verb verbal communication, which is speaking, or it is fulfilled by a typical fulfillment. What I'm about to share with you tonight in this passage is a typical fulfillment of prophecy. So look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 15 where we have, as I said, another king in the Old Testament who crossed over the Kidron. Look at verse 23. And all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron And all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. So we have another king in the Old Testament who passed over the brook Kidron. It is a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ who will go across the brook Kidron. You with me tonight? Now what caused David to cross over the brook Kidron is because his best friend and his counselor Ahithophel betrayed him. Okay? So having been betrayed by Ahithophel, his counselor and best friend, he leaves Jerusalem. And as he goes out of Jerusalem, he crosses over the Kidron, uh, that wadi there by the bridge, just like Jesus Christ. You will see in the passage in John the 18th chapter that Jesus is also going to be betrayed by his friend. And at that time, he is going to cross over the Kidron uh, let's say river, or that little creek there that was there. So it's a fulfillment typically. Now that happened to David hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world. But it was a pattern that would take place in the future. So that Ahithophel is a type of Judas Iscariot and King David is a type of Jesus Christ. So he is being betrayed just like Jesus was betrayed by his friend and by his counselor. Okay? He crosses over the Kidron River. And that Kidron River, in that day, you would have about 250,000 lambs that would be sacrificed. We're talking about right before Passover, right before the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Jesus will die on the cross at the time that the Passover lamb, lambs, plural, are being slain. Over 250,000 lambs were slain during this year in Passover. And the blood of those lambs, okay. Now you're not talking about just a little bit of blood. You're talking about a lot of the blood, a lot of blood inside of a lamb's body. And that blood would flow out, they would take that blood and they would pour it into this little concrete ditch. And that blood would flow in that little concrete ditch all the way down to the brook Kidron. So that when Jesus Christ crossed over that brook Kidron, he would have looked over that brook and he would have seen that brook was dark. dark. That's what the word Kidron means. It means dark. And he would have seen that it was dark. It would have been dark by the blood of a quarter of a million lambs that had been slain during Passover. Are y'all with me today? All the blood of all of those lambs typified prophetically of the blood that Jesus Christ would shed for you and me. But all the blood of all those lambs, a quarter million of them, could not take away your sin. And it could not take away my sin. Only the blood of the true Lamb of God, which those lambs typified, Jesus Christ, only by His blood could your sins be forgiven or be remitted. And it only takes one drop of His blood. One drop of the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you and to forgive you of all your sin. When all of those gallons and gallons and gallons of blood that flowed down that little conduit down to the Kidron brook there, not all of that blood could not take away your sin, but it pointed to His blood that would be soon shed for you. And when He crossed over that brook Kidron, He looked down, He saw the blood of all those lambs, and He knew that He was fixing to shed His blood for you and I, just like David when He crossed over back in his day. He would have looked down. He would have saw that Kidron, which means black water. He would have seen the blood in that little water there that was pointing to Jesus Christ and also the fact that He was betrayed by His friend and His counselor. All of that was typifying what would take place in the Lord Jesus Christ when He died for us on the cross. That's typical predictive prophecy. Now, if you'll go to Isaiah 53 and verse 7. You will see there a verbal fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 7. I'll give you a little time to find it. Isaiah 53, and verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. So all of those lambs typified the death of the true Lamb of God. The Bible says he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. So during this season, all these lambs were being slain. Are y'all here tonight? The blood flowing down to the Kidron. Uh, river there, Jesus would have understood it. He's a fulfillment of all of that right there. And then ultimately, he would be taken. And when he is being tried and accused and condemned to death, you will notice that he never defends himself. You know why? Because he's fulfilling Isaiah 53 and verse 7. Just like a lamb before it shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth when he was being slaughtered. And the reason why he didn't open his mouth when he was being slaughtered and defend himself was because at that time when he was being accused, he was already carrying your sin. He hadn't died for your sin yet, but he was carrying your sin so he could not defend himself because he was the sin bearer at that time that he was being accused. A little lamb, when they bring those lambs before the shearers, and they shear the wool off of those lambs, every lamb that they sheared, it was a prophecy. It was a typical prophecy. Because every lamb that was sheared, the wool that was sheared off those lambs, when they did that, that lamb never brought any kind of noise. It would sit there, and it would let them shear the wool off of it. And that's the way the lamb would respond when it would be sheer, Complete silence. And so every time, not only when the blood was shed from those lambs, but when they sheared the wool off those lambs, every time they saw that lamb keeping its mouth shut, it was a typical predictive prophecy that when Jesus Christ would come into the world and He would be falsely accused, He would not defend Himself because He was the true Lamb of God fulfilling the typical prophecy. Give the Lord praise. So... And there's much that could be said about the Kidron. I won't get into it tonight. But prophets like Jeremiah was involved with idols and whatnot. They took those idols and they threw them in the Kidron. They broke them up and they threw them in the Kidron. Because only the blood of Jesus could remove the sin of idolatry. And they're getting rid of all that trash out of, out of the land, out of Israel. And so they would thought they're in that Kidron which was a type of the blood that would be shed to take away the sins of the world. So they would take those idols and they would throw them. They broke them up. They would throw them into the brook Kedron. Now go back to John 18 and we'll see Jesus then is fulfilling these prophecies. Verbal <coughs> predicted prophecy and typical predicted prophecy. You understand what I'm trying to tell you? <coughs> I'm not trying to... Uh, I'm trying to give you understanding Because if you don't understand verbal prophecy or typical prophecy, you won't understand the Bible. See, verbal prophecy or God-given prophecy through speaking and prophecy that's given by typology, like the Lamb is a type. The high priesthood in the Old Testament is a type of Jesus Christ. Okay, Uh, The temple was a type of Jesus Christ. Those are all types and shadows of that which is to come. And the reason why the Lord gave verbal predictive prophecy and typical predictive prophecy was so that you and I could understand what was going on when it was being fulfilled. To help you understand. So that's why I'm sharing this with you tonight. To help you understand the Word of God. To help you understand what Jesus went through for you. And it was already laid out verbally. And typically, before he ever came, exactly what he would do. Amen. Say praise the Lord. So he goes out of the city in the 18th chapter, and he crosses over that brook, Kidron, dark water. And there, from there, he goes to the garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, John doesn't tell you it's Gethsemane, but we know by the other Gospels that it was the Garden of Gethsemane. And the word Gethsemane means the olive press. Okay? There would have been a wooden olive press out there in the middle of the garden where they would press the olives. The oil out of the olives would run down into a little trough. They would capture the oil. They would use it for medicine, cooking, to anoint themselves with. Amen? And so there in that garden of Gethsemane, the olive press, was where Jesus went after he crossed over this brook, And he began to pray. In that garden, and he agonized in prayer, but John doesn't record it. And the reason why John does not record his agony in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press, is because John's focus is on the deity of Jesus Christ, and his focus is on the glory of Jesus Christ. Are you here? Okay. And it is a fulfillment of the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John when Jesus was praying. It's glory. It's a glorious chapter. So now we have him, and it's again not recorded in John that he is agonizing in prayer. All right, you with me so far? But he has come to this garden called the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And this is where Jesus stayed the night. This is where he slept. And this is where he prayed. Every night. Okay? Very rarely do you ever see, in fact, I don't think there's a record of Jesus ever staying inside of the city of Jerusalem. The Gospel of Luke tells us that during the day, He went into the city of Jerusalem, and at night, He went out of the city of Jerusalem, and He stayed in the Mount of Olives. So He slept under the open air, and He prayed at nights under the open air. And this is where He resided. That was His place. Now, At the end of his ministry, he would stay at Bethany with his friends, Lazarus, etc. But up to that point, where did Jesus stay? The Gospel of Luke tells you that it was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So somebody gave Jesus the key to that garden. I don't know who owned that garden. I don't know who gave him the key to that garden. But somebody gave Jesus Christ the key to that garden so that he could go into that garden and he could pray and he could sleep at night. And this is where he went and he took his disciples. His disciples were aware of the location. He takes them out, away from the city. He goes into the garden of Gethsemane. Another fulfillment of prophecy. Because in the Old Testament, Adam fell in a garden. Man fell in the garden. Man sinned in the garden. Man was cast out of a garden. Man, because of his sin, the first Adam, brought death to the human race. So Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam, comes into the world. He goes into a garden to pray. Okay? The Bible will later tell us in the Gospel of John He dies in the garden. The Bible tells us also that the tomb that He was buried in was in the garden. Okay? So He prayed in the garden. He died in the garden. He was buried in the garden. He rose from the dead in a garden. And also the first baptism in Jesus' name of the New Testament church took place in a garden. For the remission of sins. They found an old cistern. A cistern is what, is hold, is what holds water. And and they took, and they baptized converts of the New Testament church in those cisterns that were found in the garden. So God, listen, God is in control of everything that's going on here, all of the events. He's fulfilling typical prophecy and verbal prophecy all the way through these passages. Everything has to be fulfilled to the letter. Every dot has to be there. You know what I'm saying? Everything has to be crossed. Every T. Are y'all here tonight? Because God is in control of everything that's going on. Now, can you imagine if Jesus Christ had stayed in the city of Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. What disturbance would have taken place when you have 600 people coming to try to capture Him and take Him away? The disturbance that would have taken place in the city. The people would have been disturbed. You hear? The feast of Passover would have been disturbed. And in so in order to protect also the people, Along with fulfillment of prophecy, he left the city. But he did not leave leave the city to hide. He left the city to be found. If he wanted to, all he had to do was miraculously disappear if he wanted to. You think you could find him if he didn't want to be found? You couldn't find Jesus Christ if he didn't want to be found. If you, if you came up on him, he, he can miraculously just disappear and, and be somewhere else. He wasn't hiding from them. He wanted to be found. That's why he went where he went. So he would be found. So the Bible says, having crossed over the brook Kedron, where was, it? there was a garden into which he entered and his disciples, say, and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. The devil knows where you pray. The devil knew where Jesus prayed. The devil knew where Jesus was going to be at that, that moment in that time. It was no secret because he had gone with those disciples and he, he was with Jesus during those times of prayer. The whole time Jesus was praying, the devil was standing right there. So that the devil knew where he prayed. I want you to think about that just a minute. I don't want to just rush over this part. Amen. I'm not rushing over anything. I'm giving you truth. But think about that. Wherever you pray, the devil knows where your prayer is. He knows the location that you go to. Are y'all here tonight? It reminds me of an old farmer preacher that would go out into his cornfields and he would start praying. He would seek God out there in the cornfield. And I'm telling you the truth. The place that old farmer preacher went to pray produced more corn and better corn than the rest of the field. That's a true story. God's blessing will be upon you when you pray. Amen? But don't forget that the devil might be standing in that place when you get up to go, I don't know where you pray at night, Alright? But wherever you're praying and not, just, just be aware of the fact that the devil knows exactly where you're praying and he might be waiting for you when you get there. And I'm not trying to, to scare you or anything. I'm just telling you, the devil knew where Jesus prayed and the devil brought this army to Jesus in the location of his prayer. See, a lot of times you start praying, you don't just feel God. There's another presence that you become aware of. Are y'all here tonight? And a lot of times you come to church, and it's not just the presence of God that you feel, but there is another presence that you feel in the house of God. It's not God, and it's not a, it's not a, a good angel. It's a demonic angel. It's a, it's a fallen angel named Lucifer. You have to have discernment to know what presence is around you. But just be aware of the fact that when you pray, the devil knows where you're praying and a lot of times that's where he's going to show up. He's going to be standing right there when you're praying. And so Judas Iscariot, Jesus, one of his disciples, handpicked, chosen by Jesus Christ to be his disciple. We've already covered Judas Iscariot and all of his problems, you know. Uh, But he is leading this army out to take Jesus Christ. Now watch, verse 2, And Judas also, which betray him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. This was the place where Jesus prayed, and this is where he slept. Verse 3, Judas, then having received a band of men and officers, a band is a cohort, and a cohort is anywhere from 200 to 1,200 soldiers. Can you imagine that? That Judas Iscariot, the devil, goes and is given by Rome and also by the Pharisees, the high priest there, gives Judas an escort of anywhere from 200 to 1,200 people. Now it's estimated that about 500 to 600 people actually went there that night to capture Jesus Christ. You talk about crazy men. Crazy men. Well, I think the reason why they sent five or six hundred people to capture Jesus is because they were afraid of Jesus Christ. And they thought, we better send a large army to capture this man. We've seen the miracles that he's done, the power that he's demonstrated, so we better take a large army to be able to capture Jesus. So they got a cohort of Romans you know 500 we'll just say around 500 people and then on top of that the high priest presented some temple police from the Jews so you've got the Gentiles the Roman soldiers and you have the temple police provided by the religious system so you have the government and you have religion converging in the same place It's an antichrist system. And they are going out to get Jesus Christ. Now think about that. I want you just to meditate on that just a minute. That tells you that at that time, now the Romans didn't know who he was. They didn't know who Jesus was. They just knew that they were under orders to go and capture that man. And probably the Jewish police that went with them that night did not know who he was. Okay? Are y'all awake tonight? But here they are together and they're going to get Jesus and they're supposed to be the policemen of the day. That lets me know that just because you have a police force doesn't mean that that police force is moral and godly. You've got a police force here, right here that is going to get the Christ of God capture him and ultimately Crucify him on the cross. It's all in the plan of God. God is in control of all of the events. But I'm telling you, the Romans, are y'all with me, took part in this uh, scam. And also the religious leaders took part in this scam. And they were all wrong. They're taking an innocent man, an innocent lamb, and they're going to put him to death. It's all in God's control. He's in control of that, but I'm trying to get you to see the corruption that was there. There was no reason for them to go and capture Jesus. There was no reason for those 500 soldiers to carry those spears out there in the Garden of Gethsemane that night and to take that man. There's no reason for them to do that. He's innocent. There's no reason for the temple police to go out there and to try to find this Jesus and take him captive. No reason at all. But they're under the control of the powers of hell. They're under the control of the powers of darkness. And little man, little crazy man, gets his little torches and he goes out with his little torches to find the light of the world. You talk about crazy man. You can get 10, 15,000 soldiers, but if Jesus didn't want to be bound, he would not be bound and he would not be found. 600 would not be enough, I'm I'm sorry to tell you, would not be enough if he didn't want to be found and want to be captured. Are y'all here tonight? He's a little crazy man. He's got his little army. He's going to go get Jesus of Nazareth, you know, with their little bitty torches looking for the light of the world. Why are they doing this? because they're full of darkness. So they are providing a natural light to go after the true light, the spiritual light of the world. All they can produce is natural light and natural natural reasoning. And they're going out there to get Jesus Christ, the light of the world, with their little clubs. The clubs would have been in the hands of the Roman, uh, or not the Romans, but the temple priest, uh, temple uh, police, and the Roman soldiers would have had their spears. And so here they come with their clubs and their spears and their little torches to find Jesus and to take Him captive. Isn't that funny? The Bible says, verse 3, Judas, then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priest and Pharisees, come thither with the lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom seek ye? Notice this. He wasn't hiding. He comes walking out of the garden of Gethsemane. Showing his submission as the Lamb of God. Here they are with their lance clubs and, and swords. And they think there's going to be a battle here, you know. We have to fight His disciples and fight Him, you know, and, and who knows if we're going to be able to find Him so we better get all our torches so we can go search in the darkness, you know. But Jesus is not hiding. Jesus wants to be found. He knew all things. He knew Judas Iscariot would betray Him. He knew that Judas Iscariot would bring that army that night to that garden. He knew it all. And when they show up, he presents himself. He just comes forth. Steps out of the darkness, the light of the world, says here, and he asks him a question, who are you seeking? Look at it, please. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, there we go, went forth and said unto them, whom seek ye? He knew it all. Again, John is presenting you the deity of Jesus Christ, that he knows everything, that he is omniscient. And only God knows all things. The Bible says, He knew everything that was going to happen. Amen? He had already predicted it in John chapter 7, the chapters 17, the chapters before it. He knew exactly what was going to happen. As God, He's omniscient. So John's focusing on the deity of Jesus here. His deity and humiliation. So the Bible says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon Him, went forth and said unto them whom seek ye. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, you wouldn't expect the Romans to say, Lord, Master, Savior. But you would expect the religious people to know who he was. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. There is a tone of disrespect here. Jesus of Nazareth. That's all they would say about him. They wouldn't call him Lord. They wouldn't call him Master. They wouldn't say anything about him. I'm going to tell you something about Jesus Christ. He was a man of power. And the, now the Romans, they didn't know he was the Messiah, but they knew about him. They knew him well. And the religious leaders knew him well, and they knew his claims. But when they come, they don't say Lord, they don't say Master, they don't say Savior. They just say, he says, Whom do, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Very disrespectful. At least the lack of respect is seen here. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am. The word he is in italics. It's not in the original. He said, I am. When he said that, as I preached to you last week, he's the true high priest. He's... Revealed the name of God. John, John 17 and verse 6, he came to reveal the name of God to man. And when he said, I am, when he's saying, I am Yod He vav I am Yahweh. When he said, I am, he said, I'm letting, when he said, I am, he's the one that met Moses in the burning bush. When he said, I am, he was the one that wrestled with Jacob. When he said, I, I am, he was the wheel that was in the wheel of Ezekiel. He's God Almighty. And when He said, I am, the power that was in His name and the power that was in His Word, what happened? Judas also which betrayed Him stood with them. And that's important to know. And when Jesus says, I am, what does the next verse say? As soon as then as He had said unto them, I am. They went backward and fell to the ground. They should have fallen forward in worship. But instead they fell backward in terror and fear. And when He said, I am, He just, can you imagine 600 people laying on their backs but I want you to understand some of the Bible says Judas stood with them, which means the devil was on his back too. When he said, I am, you see, he's affirming his deity. And he's showing you the power that is in his name and the power that is in his word. And he, when he said, I am, the power of His name and the power of His Word caused all 600 of those people including the devil to be laid on their back. And the reason why He released his, just a little bit of His power <laughs> like I said if He wanted to He could have wiped all of them out. Because He's God. He just released just a little bit of His power. And when He released that little bit of His power, it knocked 600 people back on their backs to the ground, showing them that He is God. But not only is showing that He is God, but to let them know you're not in control. God is in control of the whole thing. And as God, he knew everything that was going to happen that night. And when he spoke, as God, they went to the ground just by his word. He didn't have a gun. He didn't have a sword on him. Just his word drove them to the ground. And I want you to know, when they went to the ground, there was confusion in their minds. What has just happened to me? Well, it's to let you know, you cohort, of soldiers with your spears and you temple policemen with your clubs that you have no power over him and it's to let you know that Jesus is not a victim they are give God praise in the house So you 600 people that have come out here, you think you're in charge and you think you're in control. Jesus is letting you know right off right now that you're not in control. You're not in charge. That He as God is in control of everything that's happening. Every moment He is in charge of that and in control of everything that has happened. They are the victims. He's the victor. He's just fulfilling the mission that God has sent him as a man, but He's also God. And he's letting them know, you're not in control. You couldn't have found me if he didn't, you couldn't have found him if he didn't want to be found. Come on, somebody. So it's not, you know, no matter how many numbers you bring, he's still in control of everything that's happening right now. And he's in so much control that the devil, if the devil thought he was in control, if the devil thought he had any power, the devil was on his back. Because the Bible says Jesus called Judas Iscariot the devil. So you got the devil laying on his back. But i tell you what you do. Instead of falling backwards when the power of God hits you, it's better if you fall forwards in worship. And I think I've shared, you, shared with you this before, but a lot of people go lay hands on people and they start going backwards. You know what I do when people start going backwards? I try to grab a hold of them, hold them up. You with me tonight? Come on, give God praise in the house. If I study the Bible correctly, the only people that ever fell backwards were the enemies of God. So I want you to leave. Come on, preacher, lay hands on me so I can go out backwards. If you go out backwards, That might be telling me something, that you're an enemy of God. If God touched you, you need to go forward in worship. You need to bow before Him in worship. Now, if you're His enemy, He can put you on your back. He can put me on my back if I'm His enemy just by His Word, the power of His Word and the power of His name. He can put you on your back, friend. But I'd rather fall forward, and I'd rather bow to Him, and I'd rather worship Him instead of going backwards. We've seen it many times, people, we go lay hands and pray on the and we want to start falling backwards. No, you stand up. You don't want to face your problem. Okay? You're trying to you know, find a way out of, of uh, dealing with your problems. So a lot of times people just go out so they don't have to face the problems that are in them i make them stand up. Say praise the Lord. Give God praise in the house. So you see these, these guys, you know, on television and they wave their hands like this and all these people start falling backwards. I'm telling you tonight, the only people that ever fell backward in the word of God were the enemies of Christ. Give God praise in the house. I thank God He was in control of everything that was happening that night, and He was letting them know who was in charge. Little man, crazy as he can possibly be, bringing six hundred. Thinking, well, we got to have an army to capture him, you know, because he's probably not going to want to go. No, he wants to be found because he's going to fulfill the purpose and plan of God Almighty. He's not hiding. He comes right out and says, Who are you seeking? And He asked that two times. Who are you seeking? Okay. Because He wants clarity to be made. Right there on the spot. Did you come here to get me? Who did you come to get? Did you come to get me? Or did you come to get them as well? The disciples. So He's going to make sure that it's really clear that the only ones they're coming after is Him and not His disciples. Because he's protecting his disciples. So we, he wants to, he wants everybody there to be sure that the only one they're coming after is him and not those disciples. He's putting them in a tent of protection. He's watching out for them. That's why he asked two times, who do you seek? You seek the twelve, these eleven that are with me? Are you, no, no, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. They said it. Y'all with me tonight? Because he wanted clarity there. Oh, you're not coming after the disciples. Now I want you to think about that just a minute. That's a fulfillment of verbal prophecy. Would that be normal? If you go and get Jesus Christ, that you would also not take His followers in as well so that you could interrogate them and try to make them a witness against Jesus? The fact that whenever they go to get Jesus and he asks him two times, who do you seek? And they say Jesus of Nazareth. They don't say the disciples. They don't take one of those disciples in with Jesus Christ. They only take him in. That is a fulfillment of prophecy. That's unheard of for those Romans to leave his followers alone and only take him. God is in control. He's protecting His disciples. He's watching out for His disciples the whole time. Who do you seek? I'm going to prove it to you by the Word of God. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am He. I am. If therefore you seek Me, let these go their way. He said, leave them alone. You leave My disciples alone. He's protecting them. Not one of them is going to be lost. Not one of them is going to be taken captive. They're all going to be scattered, just like the Bible said. They would all, all scatter. The shepherd would be smitten and the sheep would be scattered. And it's a fulfillment of prophecy that not one of those disciples were taken in by those policemen. I'm going to tell you something tonight. And I, you know, I, you know, I honor, uh, legitimate. Come on, somebody legitimate authority you know where I stand on those things are y'all here tonight but I'm telling you the president is not in charge the police force is not in charge God is in charge of everything that's happening hallelujah and a lot of times in fact I see it here I see an anti-christ religious system and I see a corrupt police force capturing the Christ of God give the Lord praise in the house you know, had the, you know who had the power and authority in the Old Testament over the king? The prophets did. The prophets could walk into the government, into the king, and rebuke the king. It wasn't the government that had the power. It wasn't the government that was in control. If they were godly, they were in control. But it was those prophets walking in there and telling that king, you're wrong. You need to repent. You need to get right. Right. But this present world system's got a big head, man, because they think they're in charge of everything. I tell you tonight that it's God that's in charge of everything. Are y'all here tonight? You got to open up your eyes. He's in so much control, they won't take one of them in to testify or to be a witness against him. So, all right, praise the Lord. You come out to get me, I'm going to submit to you. He's going to submit to them. He's going to allow Himself to be bound. Why would He do that? Because He loves you and me. Are y'all here with me? He wants to save you and me. He wants to save these Roman soldiers. He wants to uh, save those Jewish temple police that are there. He wants to save everybody that's there that night. Come on, somebody. But He's got to get it across to them that they're not the ones that are in charge. The only reason why they could be a Roman soldier or they could be a temple police is because God allowed them to be in that position or God put them in that position. And He's letting them know He's in control. But every one of those people need to be saved. His disciples are going to go free. Not one of them will be captured. And not one of them will be asked to testify against Jesus Christ. Give the Lord praise in the house. And the Bible says, watch this. Verse 8 again, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am, if therefore you seek me, let these go their way. He's protecting them. He's watching over them. But Peter's going to mess the whole thing up. Because he's going to jump right out of the tent of protection. You're going to see it in just a minute. But even when Peter jumps out of the tent of protection that God, Jesus has set up for him, he's still going to take care of him. And and listen to me, Peter better thank God that Jesus was there that night. Because you'll see it in just a minute when Peter jumps up and he cuts the right ear off that, you know, servant of the high priest's head. cuts his right ear off. Are y'all here tonight? His right ear off, that means this side. This is Brother March's left ear, in case you don't know it. That's Brother March's right ear. You understand? So in order for Peter to cut his right ear off, he had to do something like this. Are y'all here? Or he had to do something like this with the left hand. Or he had to do it like a coward from behind with right hand cutting his ear off. You understand what I'm telling you? When he jumps up and he cuts that ear, and we'll see it in a minute, Malchus, he better thank God that Jesus is there to put that ear back on and to create an ear. That he had the power, uh, power of God to create, do a created miracle and put that earlobe back on his ear. He probably didn't cut his whole ear, probably just the earlobe off. But Jesus was standing there, put the ear back on, praise the Lord. He recreated that ear, praise the Lord. You, he better thank God Jesus was standing there that day because the Romans, listen to me, the Romans were not weak. The Romans would have jumped on him and cut him to pieces if it hadn't been for Jesus Christ standing there and restoring the ear. He protected Peter even when Peter jumped out of the tent of protection. And as we go through this, and I know I'm just getting into the 18th chapter, but you're going to see two dramas unfolding in the rest of these chapters. You're going to see the drama of Peter and the drama of Jesus Christ side by side. You're going to have two dramas. You're going to see how man acts on his own. And you're going to see how, come on somebody, how God responds to the actions of men. You're going to see the drama between Peter and Jesus Christ. And what Peter does is going to show the strength of Jesus Christ. And what Peter does is going to show the weakness of man acting on his own. So anyway, I already jumped over there and already preached it to you. But but he's got his disciples in his hands. He's protecting them. He's watching over them. They're in a tent, amen, that He has prepared for them. Spiritually speaking. The Bible says, look at it, in verse 9, that the saying might be fulfilled which He spake of them which Thou gavest Me, have I lost none. The only one is the devil that was standing there that night. And He didn't lose him because He never had him. Are y'all here tonight? I thank God for his protection. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, smote the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. All of this. Are y'all here? In one sense, you could commend Peter for his desire. He's ready to take on 600 people to protect the tree of life. He's a pretty courageous disciple. Didn't care if there's five or six of them, that's his savior. That's Jesus Christ right there. That, that is the tree of life standing right there. He's going to try to protect the tree of life. And I don't think he was just going after the ear, he was going after that dude's head. He wanted to take his head off. But the problem with Peter, he's a fisherman, he's not a very good swordsman. Praise the Lord. Not a very good aim, you know. Not very good, praise God. So, thank God Jesus was standing there. Are you all awake tonight. The weakness of Peter. But also the courage of Peter.
1: But he's acting on his own.
0: He's not, God didn't tell him to do that. He's acting on his own. When he pulls that sword out, he cuts that servant, the high priest here off, the earlobe, he's acting on his own not acting in the will of God. He thinks he's doing a good thing. All right, all right. By cutting his ear off, he thinks it's a good thing. But Jesus is going to correct him for it. Are y'all here tonight? And you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see a sword. In the Old Testament, in the Garden of Eden, the Bible tells us after the fall of the first Adam, there was an, a, a caravan, an angel that was set there. I'll say it that way for understanding. There was put at the entrance of the garden with a flaming sword to keep the way to the tree of life. And now, in the New Testament, we see a man trying to protect the tree of life by cutting this servant's ear. Oh, he's trying to kill him for what he's trying to do. But you see that sword in, after the fall of the first Adam, it kept burning and kept burning and kept burning to keep the way of the tree of life. Peter pulls that sword out. He's trying to protect the true tree of life here. But until Jesus dies on that cross and that Roman soldier puts that sword in his side, that sword of God's judgment will not be sheathed until Jesus dies on that cross. And when Jesus dies on that cross and that uh, soldier puts that sword in his side, that's when the sheath of God's wrath or the the sword of God's wrath is put in the sheath. But not until then, give God praise in the house. So he thinks he's doing a good thing. He's acting like the keeper of the Old Testament there at the Garden of Eden, the interest there that had that flaming sword. He thinks he's doing God a service. He thinks he's protecting the tree of life. But it's not in God's plan. God's gonna to have to take that sword in his own side. Jesus Christ, God man. Now. now watch what the Bible says. Verse 11, then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my father hath given me shall I not drink. From? As I already told you in John, it's not recorded the agony that he went through in that garden. He's praying, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. He's praying. He's wrestling with that. He's in agony in the, in the garden. It's not recorded in John because he's focusing on the glory of Jesus Christ. So he asked, look at Peter. Tell Peter, put up your sword. Thank God Jesus was there for Peter's sake. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? What cup is he talking about? There's a cup of salvation in the scripture. There's a cup of joy. There's a cup of wrath. What cup is he talking about? Put up your sword. The cup that my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? He's going to drink it. It's the cup of what? the judgment, the wrath of God. He's going to drink that cup of wrath and judgment so that you and I can drink the cup of joy and the cup of salvation. He already told them in John chapter 17 about the joy that He wanted to give them. But before they could have that joy, He has to drink that cup of wrath and judgment. I thank God tonight because He drank the cup of wrath and judgment that tonight I can drink the cup of salvation and the cup of joy. That's why he came, was to drink that cup. Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and did what? Bound him. You're, bound, you're binding God in flesh. Do you understand tonight? How much He loved you. He loved you so much that He was willing to be bound that you might be made free. You understand tonight that He set the whole thing up so He would be found? Why would He do it? He didn't have to, but He did. Don't you ever think in your mind that He had to do it? God provided Himself a sacrifice. Nobody made him do this. He didn't have to, but he did. He was willing to be bound that you might be free. He was willing to die for you that you you might have eternal life. He was willing to become the last Adam to restore man back to the paradise of God, the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is the paradise of God. It's the eternal paradise of God. It's the eternal garden that brings satisfaction. And the only way that you and I could get back there is if he was willing to be found and willing to be bound. Just like Joseph was willing to be bound. His feet were hurt in the fetters. Jesus Christ was willing to be bound in order to bring salvation to you and I. Give the Lord praise in the house. And the Bible says, after they bind him, he, they, the Bible says, and led him away to Annas first. Annas, the old priest. He's really the true priest in the passage. Annas, and I say the true priest, I'm talking about from the ironic priesthood. Jesus is the ultimate true priest. Annas is a corrupt thief. He's a fraud. He's satanic. Okay, History tells you about Annas. He was so corrupt that when people would come to the Passover, they knew they had to bring a lamb as a sacrifice. And Annas, according to the Talmud and other writings of the Jews, they say that Annas, when the people would bring their lambs to sacrifice to God, Annas would say, that one doesn't qualify. That is disqualified. Even if the lamb was the way it was supposed to be, this man disqualified the lamb because he had a pin full of lambs. And he would charge five times the amount for one of his lambs. And he knew that the people had to bring a lamb to sacrifice the Passover. So he would say, okay, disqualify that one. And then, oh, hey, hey, I got one over here. It's going to cost you five times the price. He was a fraud. He was corrupt. He was satanic. Are y'all here tonight? But, from God's perspective, he's the only Aaronic priesthood in the passage. Which means he's the only priest in the passage. Because Caiaphas is his son-in-law. He does not qualify to be a priest. And this is sort of like the high priest... Sort of retired. The Romans hated him, the Jews hated him, but he was extremely intelligent. He's the one that planned the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from start to finish. He planned it. He's the one that sent the soldiers or brought about the agreement from Rome to allow the soldiers to go get Jesus. He's the one that sent the temple priests, the temple police officers out there. He's all behind everything that's going on here. But he's not in control. God is. Are y'all here tonight? So Even though the Romans hated him and the Jews hated him and he was a corrupt priest, he was still the line of Aaron. Amen. So from God's perspective, he's the only one that qualifies to be a high priest. But he's corrupt. And so Jesus is the true high priest in the passage. Say praise the Lord. Annas had sons. If he was following God's plan and God's way of doing things, one of his sons would have succeeded him in the priesthood, but instead, Caiaphas, his are you with me? son-in-law, is put in the priesthood. Completely out of the plan of God, completely out of the order of God, and what it had to do with it was all about money. It was about money. Annas was about money. His corrupt priesthood was about money. And the Romans liked Caiaphas, but they hated Annas. And so this priest, semi retired, Annas, is back behind the scenes and he's in control of everything. That's why they take Jesus to Annas first, the religious leader. Two trials will take place in Jesus trying. A civil and a religious trial. Two trials. And these Roman officials take Jesus first to the religious leader of the day. Even though Caiaphas is the high priest, because he bought his priesthood with money. The Romans like Caiaphas. They don't take him to Caiaphas first. They take him to Annas. And by God's grace, next week I will tell you some things about the way that priest would judge a person when they would come into the presence of the high priest. It was a very elaborate ceremony with all kinds of bells and everything. It was was just amazing the process that they went through. Urim and Thummim would be there at the judgment seat to determine the mind of God. I'll tell you that next week if I remember. They take him to Annas first and not to Caiaphas. Because he's the brains behind the whole thing. He's the one that's got the power. Are y'all here tonight? He is a type of the false prophet in the future that will rise up. The book of Revelation talks about it in Revelation 13. Okay? The religious leader in the future, the false prophet, finds his type in Annas and Caiaphas. They are corrupt, they are satanic, they are demonic. They're coming on the scene. If they're not already here. You know what I mean? So, because he's the one behind the scenes pulling the strings. The power and the knowledge to bring it about. The Bible tells us they led, led him away to Annas first. He was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Completely out of God's plan. Completely out of the will of God. But he is the high priest that year. Two high priests? Interesting. Two high priests. One semi-retired, the one with the mind, the power behind. He's a very powerful man. The Romans knew it. Very intelligent man. The Romans knew it. Two high priests. One semi-retired. And another one, Caiaphas, who doesn't qualify to be the priest because he is the son-in-law of the high priest. He has no right to it it's all corrupt. It's all a sham. Everything. The trial is going to be a complete sham. And I'll try it by God's grace. I'm not going to get into it tonight. But it was illegal for them to try Jesus at night. Illegal. They broke the law to try Jesus that night. Bring him before that high priest Annas and then the Caiaphas. Huh? you with me tonight? They broke the law. The whole thing is a scam. It's a sham, a false accusation against the Christ of God. And they'll bring their witnesses, so to speak, in before this priest, and we'll talk about it next week. The Bible says in verse 14, Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews. And what did he say? That it was expedient that one man should die for him. You see, he planned the murder of Jesus Christ. He's the one that said it is expedient that one man should die for the people. When he said it, he didn't realize that God took his vocal cords and his tongue and made him say it. When he said it, it was just simply a plan to kill Jesus. and murder Why would Annas hate Jesus so desperately? How many times did I tell y'all Jesus went in the temple and cleansed the temple and overthrew the money changers and, and drove the sheep? How many times did I tell you? A minimum of two, most likely three times Jesus put Annas out of business. And when Jesus went in there and overthrew the money tables, uh, the money changers tables there, that was Annas' money that was laying on the ground. When he drove those, those that, that cattle and those sheep out of there, that day, amen, he told him, look over there, said, here, you take the doves, keep the doves to the top of the Holy Ghost that will follow the law. You keep the, you keep the doves. But when he drove all that cattle out of there he and knocked that money on the table, on the ground there, that was all Annas's enterprise. He put Annas's business out of business at least two times, possibly three times. And Annas Hated Jesus because of that. So now, he's already declared. The gospel tells us he's declared. He's executed. One man should die to the people. He didn't know that there was a prophecy of fulfillment coming out of his mouth. He didn't know that was a verbal prophecy coming out of his mouth. That's exactly what was going to happen. He was going to die for the nation. And not just die for the nation, but die for you and I. It was expected that one man should die for the people. From God's perspective, that was true. But He said it because He's the one that planned the murder of Jesus. He's the brains and the power behind the whole thing. I'm going to stop there. And next Wednesday, I'll talk to you about the process of trial. And I'll talk to you about. The two dramas that will unfold. The drama of Jesus Christ in redemption and the drama of Peter side by side. Showing you the weakness of man and the strength of Jesus Christ the whole time. And I will close by telling you this. That man's worst is responded to by God With God's best. This high priest, Annas, he's man's worst. Jesus stands in contrast to him as God's true high priest. When man does his worst, God responds with his best. And you will see that as we go through it. We're going to see the drama, the two dramas, and you're going to see it. God willing, when man does his worst, God does his best. Father, I come before you tonight. I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your power and your strength. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your salvation. I thank you that you are willing to go and die for us on a cross. I thank you, Lord, for this great salvation you have provided for us. And everybody said in Jesus' name. If you love him for it, lift your hands and praise him. Hallelujah to the Lamb. God, I give you worship. I give you praise. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. God. Praise God. Typical predictive prophecy and verbal predictive prophecy. I want to read one passage and I'm going to let you go. In Psalm 27 and verse 2. When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, come upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumble and fail. He was in complete control of everything that happened that night. The devil wasn't in control. Annas wasn't in control. Caiaphas wasn't in control. The Roman soldiers weren't in control. The temple police weren't in control. When they came to eat up his flesh, they stumbled and fell. I'm glad to know a Savior like that. Hallelujah. Bow your head one more time.